Okay, we're going to continue our studies in John's Gospel, Chapter 2. And the thing I'd, I'd like to remind ourselves of is the fact that we live in a very small world. And um, we have a, a very difficult time of seeing past this little small world that we're living in uh, with this small perspective that we have. We have a very small perspective. Um, we get up in the morning and and all we can see is what's in front of us. And the primary thing that preoccupies our minds is what's of personal interest to us. And so we live in this little tiny world. I often thought, think about it as I'm riding down the highway and I see the increase in the traffic around here and I see thousands of people running to and fro going all kinds of places. And every one of them, including myself, are living in our own little small world where the only thing that really matters is what we're thinking and what we're doing. That's, uh, that's just the way we are in our nature. And, um, but the universe, the universe is huge. As a matter of fact, God's creation has no border. And God has put in us a sense of that eternity. He has put it in our hearts, a sense of eternity. And uh, it's in such a way that no man can find it out. We read about that in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And so from God's perspective, it's huge. It's really huge. But our perspective is very, very small. We have these little tiny puny minds, finite minds, but he has an infinite understanding. There's no border to his knowledge and wisdom and understanding, no border to it. There's no end to it. That's incomprehensible to people with a finite mind. There's nothing that he doesn't have an answer for. Uh, but we live with questions, and so we're, we're very small. And so the advantage that we have is God has, uh, in his mercy and grace, uh, been very considerate of our smallness. And as we've noted in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10, who hath despised the day of small things? God can do amazing things through small things. And we have learned that he was able to put the fullness of the Godhead into a human body. And it was the body of Jesus Christ. Very small thing when you think about it. The body of Christ how could you put the fullness of the Godhead into a, a body, into a place where uh, 
people with a little tiny puny finite mind could actually see God. But that's what people were looking at. They were looking at a God, the God, the only God, who is eternal, the creator of all things. And so who hath despised a day of small things? And as we learn also, uh, when you think about uh, a creation that has no borders, uh, where is the middle of it? Is there a middle to something that has no borders? I mean, think about it. Just think about it for just a moment. Where, where is the center of it? Well, there's no one that can know. And when you get into the spaceship and you take off out into space, if you travel just a little while, after a while you can't even see where the Earth is. And you get lost very quickly. And so where are you going? Where is north, south, and east, and west in a creation that has no borders? Our little puny minds cannot comprehend this, folks. But God knows that. He knows that, and that's why he created earth. Earth. A little speck. And God gave us what would be the center point in his mind for all eternity to come, the place that he personally would dwell. All the fullness of the Godhead would dwell in a particular spot in an endless eternity. And it would be on earth. That's a very special place. And he was so particular in explaining these things that he went even further and told us where it would be on the earth. It would be Jerusalem. It would be the Jerusalem. And every distance would always be referenced from Jerusalem. North, south, east, and west. He would give us direction in a universe that's so big there are no directions to be found in it. There is no north, south, east, or west in a, uh, a, a, a physical creation that has no borders. There's no end to it. You can't come to the edge of it. And so God took that which is incomprehensible and great and put it into something so small as a little tiny planet called Earth in a little tiny city called Jerusalem in a little tiny place called the Temple the Temple and of course as we've studied and learned the Temple was actually a type of where God would actually dwell that Temple was a type of his body and that's what it was in the Old Testament, it was a type of his body. And as we've learned, when David had a desire to build him a house, because he had a house, God said, how can you build me a house? While the heaven of heavens cannot contain me. How can you build me a house? And so the Lord went on to tell him, and we're not going to go back to all those verses, we've already done that, but... Uh, 
He told David, he said, you can't build me a house, but I can build you one. I can build you one that I can dwell in. And it would be the body of Jesus Christ. And so who has despised the day of small things? Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the fullness of the Godhead. And he did that so that our little minds could relate to something that's so big, it's incomprehensible. And as we noted as well, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, the Lord said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. This was God's way of saying, without me intervening and revealing myself to you, you do not know a thing in the world about me. Because my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways at all. I'm totally incomprehensible to you, and you don't know a thing in the world about me apart from my revelation. And that is the significance of this amazing book. Because apart from this book, we don't know a thing in the world about God beyond our imagination and what we conceive him to be in these puny little minds, finite minds, that are completely incapable of dealing with something so glorious, so far beyond what we could ever know. And so <clears throat> the Lord Jesus came into this world, and <clears throat> the issue that he was dealing with was all the things that we've begun this Sunday school lesson with, and that is our, our total ignorance of God. And so the whole Bible from cover to cover is about one word, really. That one word is identity. The whole Bible is about the identity of God. The whole Bible from cover to cover is about coming to know God. It is also about coming to know another identity that is totally unknown apart from the same source of knowing him. And that's who we are. We have no idea who we are. Apart from God, we don't know where we came from. We don't know why we are here. And we don't know where we're going. There's not one thing that we know about death. And we know no more about living than we know about death. And so we're profoundly ignorant. And so man is born into the world, naturally speaking, thinking that he's a good person. And, and thinking and living every day as though the only intelligence he needs to ever rely upon is his own. And that's how people live. All of us. Even after we get saved, we, 
we're always trying to interpret everything and judge everything as though somehow or other we're capable of doing that. We think we can judge other people. We think we know ourselves first. I'm a good person. Then we think we know others, and it goes so far as to thinking we know God. And so we are busy in our nature trying to convert God into what we think he is or what we want him to be. And so, as we've noted, the whole Bible is about a conversion contest. The Lord is seeking to convert us to be like him, and we are seeking to convert God to be the way we are and the way we would approve of him being. I got a letter a couple of years ago from a man up in Michigan he had been listening to sermon audio, and he'd run across a message. I, I can't remember the message now that I had taught here in our church. And it was on the subject of hell. And he was a person I believe was actually saved. He was writing me. He wrote me a pretty long email. And... He was having a struggle in his journey with uh, why God would not, in his love and his mercy and grace, allow the lost who reject him in this world to be um, uh, rendered non-existent rather than casting them in hell to burn forever. And there's a lot of people that struggle with that. I've talked to people in our church that struggle with that. Uh, Peter LeBret, who used to teach Sunday school here in this church, struggled with it his whole life and confided in me many, many years ago. Uh, his struggle with understanding how God, who is love, could be a part of a person being confined to the prison of hell to burn and suffer for all eternity without any possibility of ever getting out. And he struggled with that until the day he died. And Peter LeBret, in my opinion, was one of the the best Bible teachers I've ever heard. He, uh, his favorite Bible, favorite book of the Bible was the book of Romans. And that's what he was teaching when I came here to this church. And he was still teaching in the book of Romans when he decided to retire and asked me if I would be the Sunday school teacher. And up until the time that he died, he was struggling with that. And so the thing that has helped me to grasp some of these things is never questioning the way God has revealed himself to be. It's not a matter of how we want him to be or what we think justice is or 
eternity and the outworking of eternity, how it should be, how can we with our little tiny puny minds judge God who knows all things? And so by the mercy and grace of God, I learned something many years ago that has helped me more than anything else when it comes to issues like that. The things that are hard to be understood, and it's this. God has revealed himself in his word to be love, to be merciful, to be gracious, to be full of compassion, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, no respecter of persons. It goes on and on and on. He's the ultimate personality that everybody would like to have in this present world. Someone who cannot lie. Someone who is consistent and never changes. And he said, I change not. And so he's all of these things that he has revealed himself to be. So to ever question that is to call him a liar. It is to lift self up to the level of being a judge of God, which turns the judge into God. In other words, God, I believe I'm qualified to judge you. Well, that was the cause of the fall in the Garden of Eden. You'll be as wise as God, knowing good and evil for yourself. You don't have to believe God. He's a liar. That's what the devil said. He lied to you. You'll not surely die. You've got a mind. You've got a will. You've got a way. And you can be happy without him. You can be independent from God and really be the only God you ever need is yourself. Folks, that's what the whole Bible is about from cover to cover. And the Lord, the, the, the extremes that he has gone to to convert us from that way of thinking is beyond imagination. It's absolutely incredible when you think about it. Even to the point of going to the cross of Calvary and dying the death that we deserve. And so the whole Bible is about the Lord's identity and, um, and all that he has invested in doing something about uh, <clears throat> what interfered with his original will, which was to create man in his own image and have perfect union and communion with those that he created for all eternity to come. So that we would have a relationship with him that would be equal to, in every way, the relationship that existed between the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is a perfect union, perfect unity, perfect love. And the whole Bible is designed to bring us into that union to be one with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what the whole Bible is about. That's what John's Gospel, chapter 17, is about. This was Jesus Christ's prayer to his Father, John's Gospel, chapter 17. Now, when we enter into these things, 
it has, and believe it, it has a converting effect. It, it brings us away from this finite plague that we have and our ignorance of God and our ignorance of ourselves. But if we would simply believe what God says about himself and believe what God says about ourself, again, the whole Bible is about identity. And apart from God's word, no man knows the truth about who they are and what they are and what they deserve. But God knows. And that's what this whole book is about. And so when the Lord came into the world, the issue was what was he going to do about this massive problem? Well, who is to despise the day of small things? Well, he didn't live on this earth for a long period of time. It was a small period of time of about 33 and a half years. Who has despised the day of small things? What could he do? in 33 and a half years on this earth. Well, that's what John chapter 2 is really all about. And so I've tried to emphasize this, and this is why I'm repeating some of these things, is because we need to really get a handle on this to understand so much of what the Bible is about. But it tells us in John chapter 2 and verse 1, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Now this was in Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles. This was up not far from uh, the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias, as it's called. Um, I think it's also called the Sea of Genesaret, if I said that correctly. But the thing that's interesting to note about this is the question, why was Mary called to that wedding? And as we've studied this, we've learned that this was not a little tiny wedding. This was huge. There were so many people there that there was something like 166 gallons of, of water that could potentially be turned into wine. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of beverage to drink. And, of course, the Lord turned the water into wine, at least for the, the governor of the feast, and he recognized that it was the best wine. And it was grape juice. It was not alcoholic beverage in the slightest. And a person who knows God will know that's true. A person that would think this alcoholic beverage is somebody that has not studied the Bible and they do not know God. God would not entice anybody to drink to the point that they would be drunk. That would just never happen. But the question is, why was Mary called to the wedding? And it was huge. It had a notable person, a governor, a ruler, that was the host of the wedding. This is no little affair. And so why is the very first thing 
that's mentioned in verse 1 of this wedding about his mother. Well, it's because as Paul was explaining to Festus and Agrippa, this thing was not done in a corner. Paul was not just referring to the crucifixion. He was referring to 33 and a half years. He was referring to the most historical facts in all of human history was in that period of time, 33 and a half years. Jesus Christ is the most popular personality in all of human history. And this is a historical fact because it happened. Everything recorded in this book actually happened. And so it tells us in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 24 that his fame went throughout all Syria. Why would his mother be invited to that wedding? Listen, she was the mother of one of the most famous personalities that has ever lived. Is Jesus Christ. A small thing in people's minds, because he was born as a little baby, who has despised the day of small things? But here he was, a little baby, but he, in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Who has despised the day of small things? Well, it was not just who he was that made him so famous as it was what he did. And something made him famous, so famous that the scripture says that his fame went throughout all Syria. That's way north of Jerusalem, way north of Galilee. His fame had gone all the way up there. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 26, it says his fame went abroad in all the land. Why? Because God was going to not only inspire Scripture, He was going to preserve Scripture. With all of this history in this little small thing called the Bible. Just a little book. Who does despise the day of small things? Do you think the whole mind of God could be in this little book? Well, it is. And God preserved in this little book all of the events in that 33 and a half years. He sure did. In this little book. Unrefutable things. Even Luke said, after his passion, just speaking of what took place after he was raised from the dead or after his crucifixion and resurrection from the dead, how he showed himself alive for 40 days by many infallible proofs. And all of that is in this book. And here is Luke, the Gentile physician, who is writing about it in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 3. Then we noted, as it says in John chapter 19 and verse 20, 
that when he was crucified, just to show you the fame of the Lord Jesus and God's way of emphasizing this point, when he was crucified, at the end of it, they put this superscription up above his head that said this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Why does it say that? Why did God bother to have that included in his word? Because it was his way of communicating to us 2,000 years later that this was no little matter, even though it involved a little space of time of just 33 and a half years. The whole world is represented in those words. Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. In terms of all of the languages in the world, of all the puny little minds in the whole world, this thing that happened was on a hill, not in some corner, but on a hill in broad open daylight from 9 o'clock in the morning until 3 in the afternoon. The Lord Jesus was crucified and hundreds of thousands of people were in Jerusalem and could not not know about what was going on. It was not possible. From the highest levels of government with Pilate, Herod, Festus, Agrippa, Pilate, to the most notable Bible scholars of that day, the Pharisees, to the common sinners that, you know, knew what they were, at least many of them did, and some of them discovered it after the Lord revealed it to them. But the point is, from the highest levels of the social ladder to the lowest common man, Everybody knew about this man, Jesus Christ. Why would the Lord do this? Well, the reason is obvious. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He was not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance without respect to persons. He was going to go to the cross and make the greatest investment that has ever been made for our redemption by shedding his own precious blood. As we spoke about the other week and as Jed brought out so beautifully in his message Wednesday night, the most expensive meal ever served 
was when the Lord told the disciples to go find and prepare in this large upper room a place where he could eat the Passover with his disciples. It was the most expensive meal ever prepared. It would cost an eternal price, that Passover. There's no meal ever been served that could exceed the value of that meal because it purchased what money cannot buy. It purchased everlasting life to everybody that I believe. And then the last thing I want to mention as we progress through this chapter is the very last verse of John's Gospel, chapter 21, it's verse 25. And it says this, Many other things which Jesus did, and I encourage you the last time we looked at this verse to draw a circle around the word did because that's critically important. Because that carries the idea of history that actually happened. A lie is something that did not happen, so it's not historically true. When something does happen, it is historical fact that will stand in a court of law as evidence. And so it's with great significance that the Lord said, many other things which Jesus did... The which, if every one should be written, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. This is why that little block of time of 33 and a half years is so critically important. It's because the Lord provided so much evidence for his identity in 33 and a half years. Now think about it. You've got to use your imagination to enter into this. The whole world could not contain the books that should be written of what he did. People think that the Lord Jesus did just a few miracles here and there. He healed the eyes of the blind man, a few lepers, uh, the woman with the issue of blood. He raised two or three from the dead. And that's about the limit if you ask people concerning what the Lord did that was miraculous. Folks, that is a drop in the bucket. A drop in the bucket. A person that reads carefully this book is left without excuse concerning who he was. Amen. He went into all the cities, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. I love to state this verse. Went in all the villages, all the cities, all the villages. Healed everyone of all their sicknesses and diseases. He'd go from town to town. I mean, 
Is it difficult to understand why his fame would go throughout all Syria? Is it difficult to understand that he would be known throughout the land? I mean, great multitudes followed him. You ought to read the gospel sometimes and just note how many times it says that. Great multitudes. Everywhere he went, he was flocked for three and a half years. Great multitudes. But from the time he was 12 years old, he was in the temple. Doing his father's business. Both hearing them and asking questions. Now, he didn't ask questions because he didn't know the answer. He was dealing with people who were so ignorant they didn't even know how to ask the questions that would matter. And so it was somewhat rhetorical. The Lord would ask questions because he was going to also provide the answer, and that's exactly what was going on at 12 years old. I often tell students here in the school, from the sixth grade, you're about 12 years old by that time, you are old enough to assume the full responsibilities of adulthood. And the idea that you are not an adult when you're 16 years old or you're not ready for life until you graduate from college is absurd. It's not what the Bible teaches. Dr. R.J. Rushdoony wrote a book years ago that I read called Revolt Against Maturity. And his whole book was dedicated to this one thing. Listen, some children are born in the world with musical ability that's beyond imagination. I mean, at three and four years old, can play Mozart. And some are gifted by God to have incredible intelligence in the area of math and science. Einstein, one of them. And God is pleased to give gifts to people at a very early age. And uh, I think these are things that are very important to think about. But anyway, all of that being said, let's continue our studies past the wedding. And uh, let's go to... Uh, Verse 13, well, let's go to verse, let's go to verse 12, let's read that. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. So we noted here, he goes away from Cana, and he goes down. Every time the Bible uses the term down, it's, it's usually a descent into problems. It's going away from something good. It usually carries that thought. And what was good at Cana was he turned the water into wine, which symbolically is a picture of a person coming to understand the Scripture. 
the, it turns it into the joy of salvation. It's kind of like the eunuch. When Philip got through with him, explaining to him what Isaiah 53 meant, the water of God's word was converted into the wine of joy. And that eunuch went back home uh, rejoicing. He wanted to be baptized. And we're not told anything else about him. But that's all that needed to be known about him in God's estimation. He was converted from that time on. And so he goes down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples. And so here they are as a family. They've been to the wedding and now all of them are going to go to Capernaum. And they continued there not many days. And there was a reason. And the reason is what we read in verse 13. Verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. Well, that was the problem. The Passover had become the Jews' Passover. In the conversion contest with God, they took what was actually God's, as we learn in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11, when you study that verse, it tells you specifically that it is the Lord's Passover. It's the Lord's Passover. It's not our Passover. It's not the Jews' Passover. It's the Lord's Passover. But, as is the case in the world church, the emerging church today, God has been converted into something people can live with in terms of what they want out of God. And so, they've converted the Lord's Passover into the Jews' Passover, which has become religious denominationalism. Religious denominationalism, for the most part, is a conversion contest. And that's why you've got all these different kinds of churches everywhere preaching a different Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. The only church recognized in the Bible is the true church. You had the true church. And even the true church was messed up. And that's what the first two, three chapters of uh, Revelation is all about. The only thing that's important is finding that church, that true church where a pastor has got a handle on this book and he's teaching this book it isn't denomination that saves anybody it's not religion that saves anybody it's the truth that saves people the truth and he is the truth and that's what people need they don't need religion they need the person of Jesus Christ who is the only one that can raise you from the dead he's the only one that can impart eternal life it's not the church it's not a denomination. It's not a preacher. It's not a creed. You can know the doctrine like an angel and go straight to hell. Straight to hell. 
It's only Jesus Christ and a union and communion with him, receiving him and his life as your life. That's the only way a person can go to heaven. And so the Jews' Passover was, was at hand, and it was a very zealous uh, issue. But I want you to look at something, if you will, if you'll take a moment to turn to it, there's a tremendously important word or two here in Romans chapter 10 that relates to this Jews' Passover. It's Romans chapter 10, reading at verse 1. Paul is pouring his heart out here because he knows the problem. God has shown him the problem. And he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Boy, this was passionate. There's tears behind that statement. And then he says this, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. That's true today. Verse 3. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. You want to understand what the Lord ran into in the way of a problem at Capernaum. That's it right there. They had converted the Lord's Passover into the Jews' Passover. And what was going on then is going on today. It's going on to this very moment in churches all over this town and this county, this state, this nation, the world. Man is trying to convert God into being what they want him to be. And God has given us this book to convert us into what he wants us to be. And he wants us to be like him. He wants us to die to everything that we are, 100%. Every thought. So much so that we let that mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. And as Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. In other words, I'm dead. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me by his Holy Spirit. And he said, the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the life that he had, the mind of Christ, and he had the life of Christ. And everything pertaining to Paul had been crucified. And so salvation is not in percentages. Salvation is total. 100% of everything that we are has to die. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was not in percentages. He died. 
And for a person to go to heaven, that's exactly what they've got to do. Die 100%. When Paul said, I die daily, that's what he was talking about, 100%. If I fail to do it, as I spoke of in Romans 9, he said, it's because I know what I need to do, but how to perform it, I'm struggling with it. I find not. Because there's a law in me that does not want to die every day. But I know that that's my only hope. And so he comes to the end of Romans chapter 7. And he's crying out. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I don't know how to die the way the Lord wants me to do it. And then you get into the 8th chapter of Romans. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. He died for me. He died for me, 100%, for everything that I am. And Paul died with that as his hope. It wasn't in the works of struggling to be good, because you can't do that. You have to receive his righteousness, as Paul said in Romans chapter 10. The Jews were going about to establish their own righteousness rather than receive the righteousness of God. And that's the problem. It was the problem then. It's the problem today. Today. And then you get to the 14th verse and you begin to see The zeal that ate him up, that ate him up. Verse 14, And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple. And the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And said unto them that sold doves, notice the focus on money and selling. Take these things hence. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. How could anybody miss it? The zeal that ate him up was how they had taken this Passover thing and turned it into a a profitable enterprise, something they could make money doing. It's so far from the message of this book. Because you can't with money purchase eternal life. The Apostle Peter spoke of this. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's see.
I, I'm looking in the wrong one. First Peter chapter one, verse eighteen. First Peter chapter one. My pages stuck together, and I was in Second Peter looking for something. First Peter chapter one, verse eighteen. Look at this. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You ought to jot down in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Beside of this section here in John chapter 2, as to what basically ate the Lord up. It was as though it devoured him. It ate him up. And, and there's two ways to look at this statement that's actually recorded in, in Psalm 69 as well. It's a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy by the psalmist David. The zeal of my house is eating me up. But it's also a picture of how, and this is difficult really to enter into, but I'm going to say it anyway. God literally exhausted his deity and trying to save these people. Literally exhausted it. His omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. And the power of their unbelief because of their love for their free will was so much that deity being exhausted could not save him. He stood outside Jerusalem and wept. Why? Because with all that he is, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, he could not save them because of one thing. He said in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 5, what more could I have done to my vineyard than I, that I have done? What more could I do? And you see the Lord Jesus standing on that hill, just looking down at Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered you under my wings as a, a hen does her chickens, and you would not. Ye, ye would not. And so all of his deity was employed, what you might say, to save man for himself, but there was one thing that he could not do. And that is force a person to get saved, go beyond the free will, and force him to be saved. That's why, as often as I have an opportunity, I say these words. The greatest threat that any human will ever have is the freedom to choose. There is no threat greater than that. The greatest threat is not Satan. 
It is not the Adolf Hitlers of this world. It's not the Muslim. It's not the Democrats. The greatest problem you'll ever face, you see in the mirror every morning when you get up and look at yourself. It's the freedom that we have to choose. Not only salvation of our eternal souls, but right choices even after we get saved. The biggest problem you're going to have in the course of the Christian life is the freedom to choose. Because you will choose even after you get saved to do things that are terrible. And the Bible is full of examples of this. Samson, King David, Samuel's sons. Uh, the Bible just goes on and on. The Apostle Peter, he denied the Lord three times at a very critical moment in his life. Our problem does not end after we get saved. The problem we have is left in us because the Lord wants us to study the so great salvation he has given us. And you'll never do it without a reason that you're well acquainted with. Who's going to die daily without realizing daily why they should die daily? And so the Lord leaves the old man in us Right beside of who he is. Wow, folks, I had no idea it was this late. I'm sorry. You're going to have to start stopping me, my friend. <laughs> um, well, we're moving slowly through this chapter, but I, I hope that these things will stick with us because they're so critically important. Uh, uh, Brother Gary, dismiss us this morning. Yeah, dismiss us, if you will, prayer. about the change.